The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. I remember as a child when I first uh, started messing with the power of magnets. And I remember having those two little, they're little round black magnets. They're just the basic kind of magnets and you could put them down and if you had them flipped the right direction, you could kind of push one towards the other one and it would like push the other one out of the way and you could actually move one of the magnets around without actually touching it. And I remember just seeing the, the power of magnets, how they could push each other apart or draw each other in. And, um, and, and really, magnets are an incredibly powerful thing all through uh, our lives. They're used in all different kinds of technology. They're used in all different kinds of science. In fact, I wanted to look up some trailblazing scientific uh, developments that are using magnets. And so I, I was just kind of researching a little bit. And actually, there's a, a lab in Spain where they've actually replicated a wormhole, like like from like Star Trek, okay, they've replicated a wormhole in the lab using the power of electromagnetism. I saw that, uh, read that NASA is using the power of magnets to try to figure out how to be able to manipulate and move satellites without actually having to physically touch them and to do that with the power of magnets. And I'm reading these things and I, I came across one scientific development, like front-edge technology using the power of magnets, and this got my attention more than any of the other things that I was reading. This is what you need to see this morning. Okay, check out this video. Skiers have always wanted to get some air, but the ultimate air, a hoverboard like the one in Back to the Future 2, has never been made. The hoverboard that he had on that sh- on that movie was pretty cool, pretty dope. Well, actually, I've, I have dreams where I'm hoverboarding. Those dreams may finally be coming true. This is the Hendo Hover. I mean, we have a hoverboard. We have a hoverboard. Hendo is the vision of Greg Hendo Henderson. All right. He's an architect whose interest in hovering comes from an idea to protect buildings, not create skate parks. What if you could hover a building out of an earthquake? And that was the genesis for the Hendo hoverboard. What thing is swirling. Woo! The Hendo hoverboard and Hendo hover engines work a lot like maglev trains, but they're a whole lot more efficient and much, much more affordable. We don't need to track anymore. All we need is this, a conductive, non ferromagnetic surface. Many have tried to make the hoverboard a reality. Some have used magnetic tracks and nitrogen-cooled superconductors. Others, a lot of duct tape and a leaf blower. Early this year, it looked like skaters' dreams had come true when Christopher Lloyd presented Tony Hawk with a functioning hoverboard. I, I can't believe how well it works. Until it was revealed that it was a hoax by the comedy website Funny or Die. I want to apologize for the hoverboard prank um, I thought it would be obvious that it, that it was fake, but uh, a lot of people believed it. I got a chance to try out the Hendo. It's not exactly Marty McFly's hoverboard. For now, it only works on special surfaces, and the battery life is only a few minutes long. And it's tough to ride. So no, I did not feel like Marty McFly, but I mean, you can, you can definitely tell you're floating, that's for sure. You can kind of feel that something is lifting you. 
So, will we soon all be able to ride hoverboards at the mall? Maybe, say the Hendersons. Their goal is to crowdfund a better prototype and to sell developers what they call a white box with a hover engine inside. We're not going over hedges. We can't go over water or a typical sidewalk yet. This is the Model T. This is just a stepping stone. And it's a necessary step to the next level if you want a real hoverboard. I mean, our dreams becoming reality right there. Okay, if you're looking for a Christmas present for that special loved one, consider a hoverboard. Actually, right now, there is competition um, in various technology companies to be the first to have a full-functioning hoverboard. And uh, even Lexus, actually, Lexus has put together a team of scientists to try and put together the first hoverboard. And they're all using the power of magnets to make this happen. It's an unbelievable, powerful thing. They're using the fact that magnets can repel, can attract, and they're using it so that you can control the hoverboard. And so it's an unbelievably powerful thing. Magnets, their ability, affect a lot of our lives. And um, I, I remember taking the two little magnets, the two little round black magnets, and I remember taking my hand, maybe you can remember doing this as a, as, a, as a kid, and you take the two parts, and maybe you first took the two parts that attract each other, and you try and see how close you can get them before they just snap together. Or maybe you remember flipping one side over so they're kind of repelling, and you try and see if you can kind of mush them together before they like spring out of your hands, okay? Magnets they have one pole repels, one pole attracts in the magnet. And this principle, this idea, is really very similar to this undergirding principle in every single relationship of our lives. That principle is very similar to the foundational undergirding principle in every relationship in our lives. Now, that is a huge sweeping statement. Every relationship. That's the stranger that you meet in Publix as you're shopping. Okay, that's the close friend you've known for years. That's your children. And even more so, that's your marriage. I mean, every single relationship, maybe it's, it's a client or it's a customer. I mean, every relationship. Underneath is one principle that the Bible teaches over and over and over and over and over. And of all of the various relationships, there's no, no more important relationship that this applies to than marriage. Man, marriage can be the messiest relationship in our lives. I mean, all the complications from our past, all the complications of our personality and the circumstances, I mean, they can just like weeds grow up into our marriage and just put it in this knot. There might be knots from certain conflicts in our marriage that we've never been able to untangle. And so we just kind of leave it there and say, okay, that's just going to stay knotted in this relationship. There may, it may be just such a, a big jumbled ball. It may be just so knotted together marriage that we may be tempted to say, look, it's just so complex. It's just, I, I don't know how or who could ever untangle this. It's just too messy. It's just too much. But really, when we look at this principle, there is one simple principle that's under every relationship and, un, and behind every marriage and it really simplifies everything to the point that if we could really get this principle in operation in our life, 
so many of those knots, so many of those things that are entangled in that relationship, in that marriage relationship, would untangle themselves. This is one absolutely fundamental key to marriage that we're going to look at. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verse 21. If you would turn there with me, Ephesians 5 verse 21. As you recall, we've been going through Ephesians and different sections of Ephesians through this entire series. And so here's what you need to know about what's called uh, the book Ephesians. It's actually a letter. It's written to uh, a church in the city of Ephesus. And in this letter, you have this command, Ephesians 5, verse 21. It says this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let me read that one more time. It says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I want to take, a, take our time this morning and really peel apart this one simple phrase. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, let's kind of pick this Apart. Okay, I want you to imagine this, this is a command and this is the context. I want you to imagine a, a church in Ephesus. They've maybe been around for a few years. They're, maybe, they're probably meeting in someone's house. Maybe someone that is part of this church has a courtyard they're meeting in or like a large room and they're all jam-packed in there. And the pastor of the church or one of the pastors gets a letter from Paul. He sends him this letter and he's reading it in front of the entire church. And in it are these, these encouragements, these reminders about who they are, who God is. And he gets to this point and he reads this command, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's break this apart. That first word, the command, let's just enter into the emotional weight of this word, submit. There's some weight behind that. There's some pain behind that word. I mean, think about in our culture, the, maybe where the word submission is used the most is in an MMA fight, okay? You've got an actual, in mixed martial arts, you've got like an actual, like a cage, okay? There's actually like an, an octagon and a cage, and they put people in it like two caged animals, all right? Now, I don't know, I'm not an expert on MMA. That might surprise you. I'm not like a jujitsu master or anything like that, okay? Don't want to dash your hopes and expectations, but... This is basically what the goal of MMA is. Either you knock your opponent unconscious, okay, you beat them till they're not moving, all right? That's one goal. It's really nice. The second goal is that you put them in a submission hold and they tap out. They basically say, I can't take it anymore. You've beaten me. You've mastered me. So what do you mean a submission hold? It's like they like get them on the ground and they like wrap their leg around their neck, okay? And they're like kicking them with it or something, okay? And, and they tap anything they can find, the ground, the opponent, their face. Okay, they're tapping saying, okay, I'm out. You got me. You've controlled me. You've mastered me. That person put their opponent in a submission hold. I mean, think of this word submit. Submit is you are giving up control. You are surrendering control to someone else. Okay, it, it's gritty, this word. I want you to think boot camp. You've got a soldier and they're going to boot camp and they're learning to submit to their superiors. 
Okay, it's, they're in the mud, and they're, they don't want to go forward, but they're being commanded to go forward, and they pick themselves up, and they push on. I mean, there's something that's breaking inside of them. It's not necessarily a bad thing that's breaking inside of them. There's, their own will is, is breaking to follow their superiors. Okay, I want you to think. It's like they, when they talk about breaking in a horse. Okay, you've got this wild horse. It's used to just running and galloping wherever it wants, doing whatever it wants, rearing up whenever it wants, and then they put a bit in its mouth. And they're training it to be submissive to the person that's going to be riding this horse. They call it breaking. Okay, man, there's, a, there's something inside that's painful about that. It might not be physically painful. There's something that breaks inside, not necessarily a bad thing. It's not like a, you're becoming a broken, wounded person, but there's a will that you're surrendering, that you're breaking. This word is gritty. Okay, I want you to think about a, a child. And it's when they're young and they're learning to be disciplined and they reach for something and you say, don't touch that. You ever notice that moment when they wrestle? There's a little war going inside of them and you see their hand and they, they want to reach it forward and then they're, they, they know they're not supposed to and you see this little battle going on in their minds. What's this battle? It's the, it's the pain, it's the frustration, it's the breaking of submitting. This is a powerful word. He, this is a command to submit. Okay, who is this command to submit? Remember, this is being read. It's in a group. It's in the church. They read this and they say, submit. Okay, to whom? Who is it talking to? Did you notice the next phrase? It's submit and it says, to one another. It's not just saying submit to God. Of course, we're supposed to submit to God. It's not just saying submit to the leaders in your life. Submit to those. But this is a command that we're supposed to submit to each other. All right, what's going on here? How does that all work? I mean, this is a gritty, painful, this is not a, a fun word. Okay, what is this talking about that we're supposed to submit to each other? What is this talking about? What he's exposing is this foundational principle taught all throughout Scripture that is just the axiom of all of our relationships. Okay, let, let's just do a quick overview. In the book of Matthew, Jesus puts it like this. He says, you want to know how to interact with each other? He says this, you've heard this before. He says, do for each other what you would want to be done to you. So simple, so elementary, but think of how profound that is. In other words, the basis for my interaction with you is not what I want. It's not what I want to get out of it. My basis for interaction with you is I've got to think in my mind, what is it that you want? If I was in your shoes and your circumstances, how would I want to be treated? And I change my interaction with you based on what I think, to the best of my knowledge, you would want in this situation. I am bending to you. In the book of Luke, Jesus is quoted again. He says, the greatest among you, the best the best one among you, this is success in your relationships, is the one who's the servant of all. So here's what greatness is. Serve those around you. Serve them. It says that in Luke. Okay, let's fast forward to Philippians. And Paul says in the book of Philippians, he says to another church, he says, have this mind among you. He says, this was the mindset that Jesus had. He says, have this mind among you. He says, to consider others. Listen to this. He says, consider others better than yourself. In other words, look around and not say, okay, how, okay, I'll look at the people and be like, okay, around me, 
well, I, you know, I'm better than that person because of this, and well, our family does that better than them, and you know, our, my career is, is better than that person, and this person, I'm, I'm, we're better than them. No, don't do that. He says, don't even look at peers and say, okay, how do I stack up with them? Are they ahead or am I ahead? He says, don't compare. He says, in fact, resolve the issue now. Decide that you're going to put others and consider them more important and serve them, and he appeals to Christ. He says, that's what Christ did. He came to sacrifice for us. He put us first. Okay, think about John. The letter that John writes to multiple churches, and in this letter, he says, by this we know what love is. He says, this is the definition of love. He says, look at Christ. He laid down his life for his friends. He says, go do that. He says, you want to know what love is? Man, our culture, we have no idea what to do with this idea of love. You know, what is love? Is it a feeling? Is it something that strikes me? It's something that I fall into and fall out of. It's something I can't control. I just have to figure out if I have it or not. What is love? Man, it's defined. The Bible has defined it for millennia. It says very simply, here's what love is. You have such an a, a unwavering commitment to self-sacrifice for someone. It's the choice to sacrifice over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And that commitment to someone else that is what love is. It's a choice. It's a choosing. This is this undergirding principle. All relationships boil down to this idea of putting someone else first. Not just on the surface. This isn't, notice that this is not a call to being polite. What is polite? I mean, polite's great. It's great to be polite. I hope you're polite. What's polite? It's knowing the social norms of, of the, the, the situation that I'm in. Well, I say please and I say thank you and I'm considerate. That's great. It's way more than that. It's not just being friendly. I hope you're friendly. I hope I'm considered friendly. I hope, I hope we have a warm personality. And I, and I say, how are you doing? And I mean it, okay? I, I'm, I'm friendly. I welcome people in in relationships. That's good. It's way more than that. It's not just kindness, well, how can I help them? You know, I've, can I take some time out and lend a helping hand? Or, man, do they need help? You know, well, I, I can spare some help for them. No, it's not just kindness. It's deep down saying, okay, all the way down, I will put this person first. That is the foundational principle for successful relationships. Now, this is why this is so tricky. Because in relationships, there are these relational double agents, Okay, there's these double agents. We think that we're being selfless. We think that we're sacrificing, but it's just a disguise. It disguises as being sacrificing, but underneath, man, it's really just selfishness is still lurking there. Let me just show you real quick three, three relational double agents. Okay, here's the first one. You've probably experienced this before. Three relationship double agents. Here's the first one. Manipulation. What's Manipulation. It's sacrificing in order to get something for me. You ever experienced this? Probably all of us have. Okay, you, you go to work tomorrow morning and there's a coworker that you work with, and that coworker is just not a very warm person, not a very friendly person. Man, they just have their head down, they just do their thing, and people walk by their office, hey, hey man. Okay, all right. You know, keep typing, they're changing, they're 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 busy, they have their head down, not super friendly. Okay, but something happens different tomorrow. You're in your office, and all of a sudden, this guy comes in your office. Hey, man, how are you doing? I'm all right. Are you all right? 
No, man, seriously, how was your weekend? How are the wife and kids? Are they doing well? Now you're like, all right, dude, what do you want? What are you after? Did you need me to do something for you? Okay, this is what's happening. It's sacrifice, it's warmth, it's giving, it's friendliness, it's all those things, but I really want something back from you. Okay, this is a manipulation. It's the, uh, one of the classic situations. It's the guy who's, who's, man, romancing the girl. Man, he's just so thoughtful, so romantic. He puts a great outing, a date night out, and man, he spends all kind of money, and he thinks so thoughtful, everything is super romantic, but he has an agenda. He's got a physical expectation that he's after. Okay, this is manipulation. It's, it's someone that says, okay, I will be warm to you, but I'll be nice to you. I'll even sacrifice for you, but I want something in return. You realize that that's not real selflessness. Ultimately, that's still selfishness, right? It's a double agent. Okay, here's the second one. Second double agent. This is a little harder to see. Second double agent is dependence. This is sacrificing in order to keep the relationship for me. This is one of those things that's a little bit easier to see in someone else. It's really hard to see in ourselves. It's the friend that you see, man, there's, there's two friends. And man, you're like, man, that person walks all over you. Man, that person is always making demands. That person's always the needy one. That person's never, never giving back. Well, I know, but I, I just, I really care about them. And, I, and a lot of times what that is, is, is this person is doing all the sacrificing. And the reason is they can't let go of the relationship. They want the relationship so much. So they're not willing to speak into the relationship dysfunction. They sweep it under the rug because they're holding on to the relationship. They don't want to lose the relationship. And ultimately, that's a selfish desire. They're holding on to the relationship so tightly that they're doing all the sacrificing. They may be the, the one in the dating relationship or the, mati- the marriage relationship where they're the one that's being walked all over, the one that's always bending, always breaking, and, and they're not willing to speak up for truth. They're not willing to speak into the dysfunction because they can't lose the relationship. Really what it is is they're selfishly holding on to the relationship. First one is manipulation. The second one is dependence. And I think we all know, man, those two make a deadly combination. When one party is manipulative and one party is dependent and they have their hooks in each other, man, sometimes it takes a bomb to go off for that to get right. Those are relationship double agents, but there's a third one, and this might be the hardest to see. The third one is this. It's infatuation. Say, what's wrong with infatuation? There's really nothing wrong with infatuation, but understand how infatuation works. I sacrifice because it feels good. I'll I'll serve you at the beginning of that relationship, that puppy love and the beginning of a dating relationship where it's like, man, I don't mind spending all this money on them and I don't mind doing all these nice things for them because it feels good to do all these things. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But I still don't yet know if I really love them, honestly. I won't know if I really love them until at, when that, all that infatuation is set aside and I have to really give up something that's difficult, then I'll know, am I committed to this person? Man, here's what's so tragic in our culture. Sometimes we look at when that infatuation dies and it's like now it's all of a sudden hard to sacrifice and now love gets gritty and now it is actually a personal sacrifice, not just something I want to do. A lot of times we say, oh, I fell out of love. I just don't feel like loving them anymore. Man, Love is just beginning at that point. 
That's when I'm digging in and I'm saying, okay, am I really committed to this person for the long haul? Because now it's not just easy. Man, if I'm sacrificing because it feels good for me, there's a way in which that's still selfishly moded sacrifice. But man, when it gets to the point where like, you know what? I really care about their, their, them thriving more than myself and I will truly put them first, even if it costs me something. That's when real love happens, whether it's a dating relationship, a marriage, or a friendship. See, what this is talking about, those are, those are these double agents, but what this is really talking about is down deep, underneath, there's a reprioritization all the way down in my heart where I decide I am going to put those around me first as a priority over me. This is one of those things that is so difficult all the way down. You say, okay, man, I, I don't know. It just sounds a little extreme. I mean, I, we're supposed to like, it just sounds like we're, we're supposed to defend ourselves and have some self-pride. It just sounds like you're just, this is one of those Bible things that's just a little bit unrealistic. Sounds like you're just, we're supposed to be kind of like a doormat, okay? It just, just does, it sounds like it's a little bit much. But here's what I, I bet, if you would take a look at this, I bet what you'll find I bet you'll find that underneath the surface, this is one of those things that we know when we've seen this in our, in our lives. We know this is true. We know the power of this principle. We know how much we long for a selfless relationship with someone else. Man, you've probably seen this. I want you to think about it like this. Um, whenever someone's selfishness comes up in their life, doesn't it draw out my selfishness? Isn't that my reflex? Our four-month-old, Rebecca and I have a four-month-old little boy. His name is Nehemiah. And um, he, uh, he's, a, he's a big little guy, okay? He's, um, he, the doctors say his, his, lengthwise he's like in the 95th percentile and um, he's chubby. I mean, he's got little rolls, I mean, like on his like ankles, like weird like earlobe rolls. I mean, he's just... He's a chubby little guy. Okay, now, the honest truth is um, he's, he's a big guy. Okay, he's not like setting Dennis Book of World Records, but he's a big guy. And, you know, I'm proud of that as a guy. It's, a, it's my boy right there, you know. And um, my sister has two sons, and her, her second boy, um, I love my nephews, her second child was born a couple years ago. And um, Nehemiah is big, but when her son was born, he was massive, Okay. He was literally, uh, this is not an exaggeration, his birth weight was 10 pounds, 11 ounces, okay? I remember holding him as like an infant, and it was like, <laughs> I'm holding a teenager here, okay? Like, what, who am I holding, all right? So um, now I remember um, we got some hand-me-down uh, little boy onesies from my sister, which was great, and uh, so Nehemiah was in this onesie, and I'm proud of my, my son that, you know, he's a big boy, and uh, my sister says, and she didn't mean anything by this, but she says, oh, that's a cute onesie, yeah, Judah was never able to fit into that. <laughs> Something inside me wanted to just say, let me just run down how massive my son is, okay, and then, like, you know, 95th percent, I mean, he's fat. look how fat he is, okay, and I realized... <laughs> I'm about to debate with my sister whose child is fatter, okay? All right, that's the reflex that happens in our hearts. Okay, selfishness 
Man, it draws out selfishness. Okay, you're standing on the sideline. It's after soccer practice. Your kids are out there. And uh, the other dad says, oh, you know, I'm putting Johnny in uh, baseball's coming up. Yeah, he's in, uh, he's in the club level. You know, I don't know if you, your son is, but he's in. Now all of a sudden I'm like, well, my son's in the all-star league. You know, he's traveling around the world. Well, mine's traveling inter- intergalactically, okay? And I, there's the, okay, when someone starts bragging, when someone starts self-promoting, if you're sitting in a meeting, someone starts dropping names. Now you're thinking about dropping names. And this person saying where they went to school, now you're talking about where you went to school. Okay, pride, right? Maybe you have the, the self-control not to actually respond, but isn't that the reflex? Okay, you're, you're um, getting on I-95, you're traveling, you know, on your way to work, and someone is, you're waiting to merge, and someone's selfish. I mean, everyone else is, I let you in, you let me in, and then this one jumps in front of you, and now you're driving by that person, and I mean, selfishness, it peaks selfishness. When someone starts looking out for their own self-interests, that, uh, it comes up in me. When someone gets defensive in an argument, doesn't that draw out defensiveness in me? You're kind of having a debate and then all of a sudden someone says, yeah, but you always do this. Me, I always, you always do this. And all of a sudden the heat, we just kind of build on each other. Okay, selfishness. It breeds more selfishness. Okay, that's the reflex. That's the instinct. Pride, it breeds more pride. When I'm looking after my own self-interest and I start to get grabby, now, now the other person's starting to get grabby. That's how selfishness works. But you know, the inverse is just as true, and it's just as powerful. Okay, the inverse is true. Man, someone's humility, when someone's, someone's a good listener and they're genuinely interested in your life, and, now, and then you're like, man, well, I, I want to know what's going on in your life, and you have one of those relationships, man, someone's humility draws out humility. Someone's interest in you, genuine, draws out your interest in them. And someone's act of generosity, of selflessness, it just draws that out. That's the reflex. See, here's what's happening in, in relationships. The way God wired relationships is that if we put each other first, it draws us in. There's a principle at work here. We'll call it the magnet principle. Okay, here's what the magnet principle of relationships is. It's this, selfishness. It's the pull that repels. But selflessness, it's the pull that attracts, draws in. Man, it's like a magnet, man. You flip it over. If I have selfishness in my life, I may disguise it under being polite and friendly and kind, but underneath the surface, if I'm all about me and my goals, if that's what I have, I'm looking out for number one. Selfishness, man, it repels. If I can flip the magnet over and actually be truly selfless, it draws in all, and this is true for all different kinds of relationships, whether it's working with a client, working with a customer, working with a a sibling, a parent, a child, a friend, a spouse. Selfishness, it's going to repel. Selflessness, it's going to draw in. But there's another phrase in that we read, that's another part of this phrase that we read in Ephesians 5.21. It says, submit, put others first, truly, deeply, put them first. Who? All the relationships in my life. And then it says, out of reverence for Christ. 
See, this is actually, uh, I'm going to say something that I think may be very controversial. I don't know how we can all the way down deep to the core of who we are be truly selfless unless we know Christ. I don't know how we can do that. Because the message of the gospel, it's not just because Jesus is this model that we follow. No, the message of the gospel, it does something to us. Think about the gospel. And the gospel is the message that God looks down on humanity and he loves us so much that he says, man, humanity, it's, look how selfish humanity is. Look how prideful humanity, humanity is sinful. He says, man, and, and the just punishment for all of us that we all deserve because of our sin is an eternity away from God in hell. That's justice. But he looks down and he says, man, I've got to rescue them. They can't save themselves. And God enters into humanity as the person Jesus Christ. Jesus was God in the flesh. And Jesus, who is sinless, who is perfect, he surrenders himself to death. Actually dies crucified on the cross. And what's happening is a transaction is made where God is saying, man, I will, I will let Jesus die in your place. His death will count for you, and you will be declared not guilty. Your punishment has been paid. Your sentence has been served. You'll be declared not guilty. And then this is what happens. So not only do we know that we've been rescued by God, but then he enters into our hearts, goes to work on us, pulling that selfishness out, and he's He's repairing our sinful hearts, pulling the pride, pulling the self-interest, pulling the self-centeredness, and he's pulling it out of our hearts. See, really what the gospel does down deep, when we realize that I need to be rescued, when I just say, God, you've got to save me, here's what's happening. And that is humbling. I can't save myself. I, it's just Jesus' death that saves me. That rescue is, is it's humiliating. Here's what it's doing. I'm dethroning myself. And now God is on the throne. I'm saying I can't save myself. I am not infallible. I am not holy. I am off the throne. God is on the throne of my heart and now I can truly put others before me. So I want you to notice something else about this phrase. It's really the header that goes into this entire section on home life relationships. But if you looked in your Bible, you'd see what is the very next relationships it talks about? It's marriage. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, okay, so let's talk about marriage. Husbands and wives. See, what's, what's so sad about our society's view of marriage, we have no idea what to do with marriage. Here's what we say. We say, man, marriage, it, it, I've got to find someone combat, compatible with me. And, and so that's why our culture is confused. Man, is marriage even possible to be compatible with someone long term? Is that even possible? That just sounds like something that, that we've realized doesn't really work. So I've got to find someone who's going who's to appeal to how I'm changed. They're going to bend to how I'm changing through my life. And someone who's going to be compatible with me my entire life. And, and say, man, I just don't see how that's going to work. Someone's going to surrender their interests for my interests. See, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of marriage. Marriage is I am willing to become someone new. Marriage starts with this premise. I am not infallible. I have flaws. Infallible is something that only God has. I am flawed. Here's what that means. I need to change throughout the rest of my life, whether I'm 19, 29, or 99, 
I need to change and become more like God for the rest of my life. I never get to the place where I am perfectly the way I need to be. And the idea of expecting someone to be compatible with me now is essentially saying, this is who I am. I don't need to change. You've got to fit me. But what marriage actually is, is saying, God, you intend, thank you, you intend to change me for the rest of my life, so I need to find someone who's mutually compatible with that mission. And we're going to be changing each other, growing not more, I'm not growing more me, I'm growing more into this oneness with this person. So it's not about meeting my needs. It's about this oneness, this this other thing that we're growing into together. That means that I can't say, you've got to meet my needs. I can't say, man, this is how I think that we should handle money, and if you're not on board with this, you're wrong. I can't say, man, this is what our sex life is supposed to look like, and if you don't reach this, then you're not meeting my needs. Man, if you don't know, if you're not on board with parenting the way I'm seeing that we need to parent, then man, you're wrong and you need to go get fixed. No, it's saying, God, you are making me into something else. And so I, I can be changed, I will be changed, and I'm bringing this person, you're bringing this person into my life to make me something that's completely different, something that's selfless, something that, that's something completely different than I already am. Many of our community groups right now are going through this study called The Meaning of Marriage, written by Tim Keller. If you're not in a group, I encourage you to look at potentially jumping into one of these groups that are going through The Meaning of Marriage. Um, you can do that in the, in the front lobby um, at the connection at the uh, community group's table. But there's a quote in that book by Tim Keller. This is what um, the quote says. It says, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. What if underneath all the problems I just stop and say, okay, I just need to root out where my self-centeredness is. You'll be actually finally pulling that one strand in that whole tangle that you can pull and it all unravels. We try and pull all the other strands of the other person's self-centeredness and it just makes the knot harder tighter, but if I can just pull this one strand, it all unravels, dealing with my own self-centeredness. Man, how do we do this? Let's just quickly go through four, four critical applications of this. Let's just move through this quickly. Four critical applications of the magnet principle. Here's the first one. The first one is the mind. I want you to think magnet, M-G-N-T, magnet. The first one, the M, is my mind. We have got to, in our minds, this is the, the, the most important part of becoming truly selfless and other-centered. I've got to capture the selfish thoughts in my mind. Sometimes I'm mad, I'm in a fight, sometimes I'm mad at, this, at my spouse, and so I, I said, man, I can't believe they're not considering this, and if they were like me, they'd see this, and man, I can't believe they're doing this to me, and what I do is I have all these self-centered, selfish, self-righteous, self-pitying thoughts, and what I sometimes do is I just sit and I stew in it. I just sit in, the old, in my own filth of my mind, just this cesspool of selfishness, and I just sit in it, and I just steep in it, and I just brew in my own selfishness. I'm getting more and more and more selfish, and selfishness repels. And what we've got to do in our minds is fight this battle. I've got to capture those thoughts and say, you know what, I'm being self-centered, I'm being selfish, I'm being self-righteous, I'm being self-pitying. I've got to capture those thoughts, and I've got to replace it with empathy. 
man, what might they be going through right now? What am I missing? And they're going through a tough time. How can I respond better to them? I've got to fight this battle in my mind. The M is mind. The G is this. For some of us, we've got to just fundamentally retool our goal of this relationship. Because we may be operating from this goal of saying, you know what my goal is? My goal is that this person will meet my needs. This person, I'm not going to change, so this person has to change to me. And I've got to say, okay, you know what? I have to change. I am a fallible person. Only God is infallible. I need to spend the rest of my life changing. And God's brought this person in my life to help me become more like him. I've got to be willing to change. That's my fundamental goal. That's the M. That's the G. Here's the N, is needs. More specifically, in my marriage, there will be times when I've got to pick, am I going to advocate for my needs or am I going to advocate for their needs? And here's the options. Can have two spouses and each fighting for their own needs and they may be clawing and scratching and they may get their needs met, but they'll be farther apart. Or each spouse can advocate for each other's needs and both needs get met and they draw together. Here's what Tim Keller says on that out of the meaning of marriage, beautifully put. Here's what he says. The Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. This is the picture of marriage. It's the mind. It's the goal. It's my needs. But here's the last one, man. This is the tip of the spear. This is, this is the ground war. It's in my talk. And do we realize how easily we repel someone by our words? Rude words? Defensive words? Selfish words? Man, some of us, we know, man, I can... I know what to say to just pull, cut them out at the knees. And I know what to say to just whittle them down to size. Some of us are very aware of the power of, of our words to repel. But some of us have never dabbled in the equally powerful power of our talk to attract. Do you realize just stopping and using words to draw them in and saying, you know what, I'm not just, I'm, let me just try this differently and calmly saying, look, We've both been hurt here. But let's start with how I, I believe I've hurt you. Can you help me understand that? Let's start there. Walls go down. And now there's someone who's being drawn in. Man, I, I think that I am probably not fully understanding you, and I, I can tell that you don't feel understood. Can you help me make sure I understand you? Can you go through this again? Man, starting with using those words strategically, do you realize the power to attract that you have in your talk? See, underneath this, all relationships and chiefly underneath marriage is this magnet principle. We can be selfish. Our selfishness can be repelling, 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 or we can be selfless and we can be drawing together. You may be here and you may be saying, look, you don't understand. I can't, I can't risk getting hurt again. I've tried that. I've tried sacrificing. I've tried giving up. And I get clobbered. And I get wounded. And I get brutalized. I just don't know if I've got it left in me. I, I just don't know that I can muster up the strength to do it again. To try again. To start over again. Who's going to advocate for me? You say, I, I just don't have the strength. Then here's what I would say. You're right. 
You don't have the strength. But this is where we turn to God and say, Christ, I need your strength. The same way, Jesus, you pushed on with your eyes fixed on the cross, despising its shame, and you took the cross for me, would you empower me with that love to continue sacrificing for this person and giving to this person? And this morning, maybe you need to be surrounded and encompassed by the love of God and use that to fuel you forward, to continue choosing to love this person that God's placed you with. Be filled with the incredible love of God. Be surrounded, be caught up in, sink deeply into that love and find your strength to continue forward. Some of you are here and you're saying, honestly, where I'm at is I've never dethroned me. I've been maybe doing religious things, Christian things, church things, but I've never just put God on the throne. and I've, I've never just surrendered and said, I need to be rescued. I thought I could do it myself. Maybe today you need to say, Jesus, you died for me. Just rescue me, save me, forgive me. I surrender. I need to be rescued. And God, I want to put you on the throne. Is that you? If that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of God and put him on the throne for the first time this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? that's you this morning, you're saying, I want to put God on the throne. I, I, I want to be rescued. I'd say surrender. Submit to God today, please. And if that's you with your head bowed between you and God, pray a prayer of surrender and submission to God. Pray this prayer just right there in your heart between you and God. Say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Thank you for forgiving me, loving me that much. I put you on the throne of my heart. Every part of my life is surrendered to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.